0: Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush, the podcast where we get to know the scientists behind the research to find out they may have too many crushes, but they absolutely love prints, or that they aren't startled often, but when they are, it's because of small plastic bags drifting on the sidewalk and just making a little scraping sound. Maybe the last one is just me, your host, Ben Rush. A few things up top. If you are enjoying the podcast, might I suggest you follow it on Twitter and perhaps me as well? You can find the podcast on Twitter at Deeper Than Data and me at Ben Rush Science. Secondly, and more importantly, the podcast is a new team member, my Jevin, and I accidentally uh, just typed out my Jevin in the script for the introduction. But also, he's my sunflower, so I'm pretty protective of it. My Jevin, also my friend Jevin. Hi, Jevin has joined the Deeper Than Data media team. So now, when I say we, I'm not just promoting wishful thinking. So for the episode, I hope you listen to the whole episode as it's heartfelt and enlightening. Balance with the voice of silk from Bianca Baldrige. Bianca, thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you?
1: Hi Ben, thanks for having me. I'm doing okay today.
0: Okay, good to hear. Uh, so, if you could just start with your name and your pronouns that you prefer.
1: Yeah, my name is Bianca Baldridge, and uh, my pronouns are she/her/hers.
0: Fantastic. And if you could give you, uh, <laughs> if you could give your physical description of yourself, that'd be great. Nailed it.
1: So I am a brown skinned black woman. Um, I unfortunately don't have much height. Um, I'm five, two and a half. Um, And um, one of the things that I um, appreciate about my style is that I really love big earrings. And so I am wearing pretty large earrings. Um, They are from my earlobes down to kind of like halfway down my shoulder.
0: Are you... I'm breaking for the interview already, but do you have um, a whole series? Do you have like a, a set for like Mondays or uh, Tuesdays or anything like that?
1: So I prepare my earrings based on how I'm feeling and then also based on my outfit. Um, and so actually my hair is actually pulled back. Um, sometimes I have it out and it can be pretty large. Um, but um, I have lots and lots of earrings, like lots of earrings, lots of colors too. So I have bright yellows and oranges and blues, and the bigger the better.
0: (laughs) Nice, nice. Any identities about yourself you'd like to highlight?
1: Yeah, um, I I moved through the world as a black woman, um, a cis black woman, um, and yeah.
0: Cool, cool. And then your positions and roles on UW's campus.
1: So at UW Madison, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Educational Policy Studies. Um, And I was recently promoted to tenure um, about a year ago, actually a year ago last week. So I I hit my my anniversary, I guess, of being a tenured associate professor here.
0: Yeah. Congrats. Thanks. Yes. (laughs) UW is very lucky to have you thank you um <laughs> and then the i think the hardest question for everybody is could you give us a two-minute research pitch of what you do
1: two minutes um so i am a community-based youth worker by training so i have always engaged with young people um outside of school context and community organizations and so my research examines the broader socio-political context of community-based education and community-based youth work and so i examine how Um, structures of race and class and gender, how that shapes how these programs get um, get implemented. Um, and I also study the experiment, experiences of youth workers um, in those programs, um, hoping to really value, bring value, well not bring value, but highlight the valuable, incredible work that youth workers do. They, oft, they are often are overshadowed by teachers, classroom teachers. Um, and I also study the experiences of young people who participate in these programs. Um, and in particular, my work has featured um, Black youth and Latinx youth um, in, in those programs.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And we will definitely get to that. Uh, I have to go back to the beginning though. And I do this with my favorite question of who was your first crush?
1: Ooh, okay. So I have a lot of crushes and my partner always jokes with me. He's like, you had a crush on everybody. I'm like, I did. Um, So do you mean (laughs) like crush in school, like celebrity crush? Like I have have many. Mm.
0: Yes. This is the first (laughs) follow-up. Let's let's go. Can we do both? Can we do first Mm -hmm. celebrity crush and first school crush?
1: Okay. First school crush, hands down would be Royce Parks, um, who I'm actually friends with on Facebook. (laughs) Um, And we actually dated like first grade, second grade. (laughs) I still wow. remember his birth date um, and uh, yeah, Royce Parks, that, that was my, my school crush. Um, <laughs> celebrity. I had so many. Um, oh, goodness. I don't even... Yeah. I, I, hmm.
0: <laughs> where to begin?
1: <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. There were so many. I mean, I was uh, really obsessed with um, Ralph Tresvant from New Edition. Um, I was obsessed with Denzel Washington. (laughs) I was obsessed with little Tevin Campbell. (laughs) So lots and lots of musicians and actors. Um, But yeah, when I was a kid, I probably developed a new crush every week.
0: That seems about right. Yeah. (laughs) Keep that romantic side alive. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You're saying like you're dating someone in first grade. I'm just trying to imagine like the actual dates, the dates you went on is like, Oh, do you like give each other a note?
1: Oh, there. yes, absolutely. Uh, hand notes. You know, you have to say, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe check the box. Um, you know, holding hands and playing footsies under the table. That's, wow. that, that was the extent of of wow. uh, school dating.
0: Yeah, I don't think I did any of that until like fourth <laughs> or fifth grade. You're so far ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay. Yeah. Glad I I always get the hot gossip (laughs) from that (laughs) question. Um, Okay. So that gets us like in a perfect spot. You know, you're you're doing a lot of uh, work around education. So I wanted to ask you, like, what was your experience in kindergarten and grade school?
1: Ooh, great school. For me, I um, I really loved school. Um, I have an older brother who is um, about a year and a half older than me, but um, who's two years ahead of me in school. Um, and word on the street, <laughs> according to my parents, I was really jealous that he got to learn to read before me. Um, I was just always jealous of him doing his homework and <laughs> whatever he was doing, I wanted to do it too. Um, and I couldn't wait to go to school. Um, so, uh, um, elementary school for me was, um, I really enjoyed it. I, so I grew up in South central Los Angeles. So I went to 74th elementary school and it is the elementary school that my mom went to that my two uncles went to that th- four of my, maybe five of my cousins went to. And the school is situated three blocks away from my grandmother's house, which is the house, um, that my mother grew up in, so this was truly a neighborhood school in a predominantly black community, and the family went there, um, and I, I I loved it. I, my school principal was a beautiful, beautiful black woman named Miss um, Hayes, Mrs. Hayes. I still remember her name. Um, yeah, I, um, I I I just loved being there. Um, I loved to, I loved to learn, um, and my parents also told me how upset I was when I. Couldn't figure out a problem, or you know, if I didn't do well in a test. Like I was, uh, you know, always kind of uh, an overachiever, I guess. Um, but I, I really, I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed school a lot, um, and I loved the fact that it was three blocks away, and I love the fact that most of the neighborhood went right. So we would walk in the morning, and it was almost like you would pick people up along the way. Um, you know, at everybody's house, you would kind of pick people along the way to get to school and we'd walk home together. And I just, it was such a wonderful community.
0: Yeah. That seems really ideal. I'm curious to like, if you, even at this early age, started to think about like how kids were being taught. Like, it sounds like you were really into learning and trying to like soak up as much information as you could, but curious, like, was it in middle school, high school, when you start to think about how the actual teaching of teaching sort of influences education?
1: I, I thought about teaching early on. So I, I think it was actually my first grade teacher, Mrs. Welford. <laughs> I don't know how these names are coming back to me. Um, <laughs> <she> was, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I really liked school. Um, she was amazing. And she was kind of the quintessential, like tough love, you know, no nonsense uh, teacher. Um, my first grade teacher, uh, yeah, she was uh, the first black teacher that I had. Um, And I was immediately just drawn to her style. So she was tough, but she loved us. Um, And uh, I think that's something that's had a profound impact on me um, in my work with young people, particularly in the out-of-school context. Primarily, my work has always been with um, Black youth and Latinx youth. And so, you know, coming into... I think being able to work with young people is a, is a privilege. Not everybody should do it. Not everybody should get to do it. Um, And I think leading with love is really important. Um, And so um, she modeled that for me. And so uh, I remember, this is an embarrassing story, but I used to set up my stuffed animals like in my room and like pretend to teach them. Um, So, you know, I think from, you know, the earliest, the earliest memory I have, like, I knew that I wanted to, be a teacher there was something that i was drawn to about um i think the care for young people but then also this idea of being like holding some knowledge and then being able to share it with other people um but then also be vulnerable and be able to learn from you know learn from others as well so i really I don't know i really got, had a profound impact on me
0: yeah and you're also not the only one who had stuff animals lined up for some reason i had a whole question of- <laughs> yeah i had i think 15 or so penguins. I was obsessed with penguins as a Where kid. Why penguins? And I have no idea. Till this, I, It was just something that I fell into. Um, I, I don't know. And yeah, uh, I was lucky enough, I'm jumping like 20 years here, but um, I, I worked at a zoo for a little bit. I was an intern at a zoo and got to work with penguins. And, you know, My love for them did die a little bit. (laughs) I think after (laughs) working with them, because they're you know birds are not the most sanitary things out there. But they're yeah, they're still goofy, (laughs) and I appreciate them. Yeah. Anyways, penguins aside, did you start becoming pretty active um, either in your neighborhood, like with your school, because you you really enjoy working with youth activists? But I'm imagining you were also one at some point in your life.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so after elementary school, I went to the neighborhood middle school, um, Horseman Middle School, uh, which was maybe about seven blocks or so from my house. And then two weeks being there, we got transferred to um, a magnet school um, in the school district it's called Westside. At the at the time, it was called Westside Alternative School. Uh, long story short, um, the school was K through twelve. Um, and I I guess I yeah, began there in the sixth grade. And um, at that point, the focus of the magnet school was environmental studies. And then in my eighth grade year, it transitioned to a leadership magnet. Um, and we partnered with a, a statewide community-based, um, well, a statewide organization that engaged young leaders um, throughout the state of California. Uh, and so the school's focus was on leadership. So, you know, everything from, you know, conflict resolution to strategic planning, thinking about student government, civics, community engagement, like all those kinds of things. So it was through um, that school and through the organization um, that I began working with other young people my age, sometimes older, sometimes younger. Uh, and I spent a lot of Time in my life, so from middle school all the in through high school, in um, college, and a little bit in grad school as, as well. I've worked with this organization, and so um, I think what's interesting about this story. So by the time I was in eighth grade, I was uh, working with elementary school students, teaching, um, working with middle school, middle school students, working with teachers, working with high school students around all kinds of issues, um, and sort of guiding them through whatever it is they wanted to get done. So for example, um, I, um, you know, through this organization, I was able to like go into school districts and work with like, our particular schools and work with uh, student councils to achieve whatever goal they wanted to achieve. And so what was really remarkable this, this program, um, you know, really allowed Teenagers to kind of um, be front and center and take the lead um, as um, as young leaders, so uh, so yeah, so that is kind of where I began, um, sort of teaching outside of school, sort of understanding what this thing was called facilitation and sort of guiding people through awareness and um, you know various stages of development and um, and I think it was at that point, um, really like eighth ninth grade where I knew that I loved teaching. I loved. Talking to people, being in community with people, building community, fostering community. Um, but I knew that I didn't want to do it in a classroom. There was there there were a couple of things that I noticed, especially in high school. One, I felt like there were some constraints on what you could teach in the classroom setting. <laughs> and then the second thing I you know um, felt was uh, that I wouldn't be good at it. <laughs> And what I mean by that is I don't I don't know that I could feel responsible for like, you know, second graders not learning how to read. Like, I just, I, I think teachers are incredible. Um, You know, especially in the early, um, early, early levels, like elementary school, like they do a lot of foundational work that I just don't think that I could do. Um, <laughs> and I always felt, said that if I had to go into teaching, because I did consider it at, at one point in time, traditional classroom teaching, that I would probably think about doing history, like a history teacher or English teacher, um, social studies, something where I could have a little bit of flexibility to sort of, you know, kind of push the envelope a little bit on things. Um, But I enjoyed it much more to do it outside of school. Like there was just something really special about not feeling the constraints of school um, and being able to have honest conversations about what was going on in the lives of my peers.
0: And I feel like that also signifies like you're showing of what could be your free time to be spending with others and helping them achieve their goals, which is, is extremely meaningful. You're not trapped in a school and have to work with them it's it's wild to me that you're like yeah i know i definitely want to be in education but not this sector like i know kind of the audience that i'm going to work with from such a young age because i i'm still learning that i i have tried with um almost all ages and it's like i think i need a little bit of older people just so they can understand Humor, like that's how I connect with people, <laughs> and I can't necessarily be super sarcastic with like a four-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> it just doesn't land that well. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really amazing. Uh,
1: older so, older students. I'm sorry, older students, as in high school, or are you okay with middle school
0: too? Ooh, you know, <laughs> middle school
1: is tough.
0: <laughs> middle school is probably the toughest for me. I think high school and up is really enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when you can start to deal with complexity, uh, not everything's like ones or zeros when defining things. Love that. love mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And uh, again, that humor it's like just how I communicate is is right at that age. And then I seem cool because I'm funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I after you did your time in high school, did you transition to... I'm trying to think of like an actual degree that would line up with your interests and passions, which is not typically there as far as I'm aware of, but I would imagine you just continue your passions and also work on something
1: else at the same time. Yeah. So I actually didn't um, understand that there was a sector. Like I didn't, I didn't quite understand that there was, you know, this youth development sector, this, you know, or out of school time sector. I didn't, that didn't register to me. Um, as a high school student, it didn't even register for me as a as a college student, even though I was doing a lot of the work. Um, I knew that it was youth leadership, youth development, uh, youth work, but it wasn't until I went to graduate school that I kind of began to sort of put pieces together to kind of understand the landscape um, of sort of learning outside of school. Um, but from from after high school, um, I transitioned to uh, to college. I went to UC Berkeley, and I was still very much connected to this this organization. Um, and then so going to UC Berkeley you know that living in Berkeley um, you know hanging out in Oakland uh, in Oakland the Bay Area period has this very very rich history um, of activism and organizing particularly in black communities um, so you know the birthplace of the Black Panther Party so there was this incredible energy um, of just young activists so in addition to my peers in college right who were, amazing. Um, For me in college, it was kind of being involved in like undergraduate life and campus stuff sort of related to activism and building community again. Like I found myself building community yet again. Um, And I, you know, uh, working with uh, first year students, um, that was really important to me, but then um, continuing to do the work of um, learning different organizations in the area, having the opportunity to work with high school students, um, whether it was tutoring, whether it was, uh, you know, some kind of um, sort of political education. I uh, kind of found my groove, I guess, in, in really enjoying that kind of work. Uh, and then when I got into my research at the undergraduate level, I started to kind of put more connections into it and just sort of thinking about um, how and why this matters. Um, so one of the things that I forgot to mention earlier is the organization that I um, that I was um, a part of in middle school and high school and, and did work in college and graduate school as well. Um, growing up, um, I was one of, I've, I counted once before, but probably 10 to 12 Black students in this organization. And we're talking about a national organization um, that has students from in from these from the state right throughout the state and there were just always a handful of black students uh, and so there were times in the program where i felt like um i was kind of positioned as this um i want say charity case or in this very kind of paternalistic um, sort of, we're saving you from the the depths of despair of <laughs> of South Los Angeles, you know that kind of that kind of thing. Um, and that didn't I knew that it had always felt uncomfortable, but I didn't have a language for it. And I didn't begin to have a language for it until I started studying a little bit more um, and sort of understanding the dynamics of race and thinking about class and understanding paternalism and philanthropy and like all those kinds of things. Uh, and so all of this sort of led into my research agenda. Um, But in spite of all that, you know, I knew that youth development, youth work, learning outside of school was important, extremely invaluable, really just incredible, powerful work for young people, but that it could not be studied and it could not be, you could not do it, you should not do it without having a firm understanding of, Uh, the dynamics of race and class and gender and power and privilege and all those things, right? Like you just need to be able to be aware of how that shapes an individual and how they go into engage with young people, but then also sort of thinking about um, the broader sort of structures of education um, and the ways that um, all those forces shape schools, but how they also shape community organizations.
0: When you were starting to learn about, you know, all these societal factors that are putting you in a position where you're feeling kind of like in this organization, patronized when you're learning the terms for this, was this empowering? Cause I'm sure you've had the feelings before, but now it's like, I know, I know what to call this like right now. Not only that, I'm going to tell other people about that too. <laughs> you're younger than me.
1: Yeah, no, that's a, yeah. I, I felt like I started to put more language to it as I got older. Um, as I definitely as I got older, as I moved through graduate school, but the cool thing about it all, um, so uh, one of the great things about the, the organization is that um, it was kind of a peer to peer training model, or like training the trainer. So college students, we'd also en- we would often engage with college students um, as high school students, high school students working with middle school students, and so when I was in high school, I I had a level of you know like friendships with college students who in many ways were able to be like, okay, now Bianca, this is the way you were introduced. I don't know. I don't really like that. And I'd be like, well, why? And so being able to be just having conversations with them kind of opened my eyes to um, kind of put some language to what it was I was feeling. Um, and so I'm really grateful for that experience. Um, and then as a college student, you know, working with, uh, you know, being in community with graduate students who had lived longer, who had you know more life experience under their belt, um, who could name things for me, um, and that was really important. And then taking all of that then to my own studies, <laughs> my own research studies, just really, really helped me come to terms with some things. Yeah, just really kind of um, yeah, situate the just everything that this kind of work entailed for me and my own personal experience, but it also really helped me become a better youth worker um, because I spent uh, pretty much most of my graduate school career uh, working in other organizations <laughs> as as a staff member, as a you know full-time staff member.
0: Doing lots of duties. <laughs> Did you take the example of one of your earlier teachers with leading with love um, through all of the work that you were doing? So I, I think it's. I'm with you. Leading with your heart is probably the best way to go. It also means you are open and could also get hurt by doing it, but at the same time, probably really rewarding.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, going back to Miss Well Ford um, in the first grade <laughs> um, and her example of leading with love. Um, and, you know, I think more specifically, it was that I could feel that she loved Black children. Hmm. And for me, that's very different um, than other classrooms that I've been in where I've had good teachers. I've had, I mean, I've had some not so good teachers. They were mostly substitute teachers, but like for the most part, I've had incredible teachers, um, you know, of multiple racial backgrounds in some ways, but like for me as a black woman, as a black, little black girl, it was so empowering for me to have a black woman in front of the classroom who, I had no doubt who thought I was brilliant, mm. right? Who had who had no doubt that I was intelligent, and told my parents so. Like you know, like that. So I, for me, it was, it's that kind of love. Um, and as I mentioned, a lot of my work has been with um, Black youth and Latinx youth, and I, you know, just that being able to come in contact with young people and like mm. genuinely love them. You know, and to not question that, to not question their intelligence, like that—that that for me is how I, I definitely took that with me <laughs> throughout all of my um, all of my youth work experiences. But sadly, though, I don't I don't believe that the majority of teachers <laughs> in, in classrooms or even youth workers for that matter love children. I mean, we I mean, have to be real; like they're people who are in front of kids every day who don't even like children. <laughs> Um,
0: so, yeah. So, how do you show uh, your love and affection with the the youth you're working with? And you know, this is you know just going with you in youth, but a fundamental skill I think for anyone who is older and trying to instill some knowledge or just generally accept another person.
1: Yeah, I think part of it um, I have to sort of rely on some of my experiences. Um, a little before Madison, I was, I spent time in seven years of life, um, in New York city and working with a couple of programs, spent some time in Washington, DC, worked with the, a couple of programs there. And I think for me, the, that, that love and, um, sort of knowing, right. That the young people in front of you are brilliant and capable is treating them that way. Right. It's like, <laughs> not that you don't provide guidance or explanations, but there's a inherent, belief and attitude that, you know, the expectations are high because we know that you're capable um, and not not questioning that. Uh, and so throughout some of my youth work experiences, I've worked a lot with, um, you know, doing critical like youth participatory action research, working with young people who are youth organizers. And, I'm, and part of that is kind of stepping back as an adult. Like if you step back as an adult, because there's a whole lot of adultism. And youth work, right? Where where adults come in and they want to take things. Sorry, they want to take things over. You know, <laughs> they want to tell young people what they should know, what they should do. Um, and part of it believing in the brilliance of young people is stepping back, right? Trusting that what you've said to them, or things that you've taught them, or the skills that you've shown them, that they're gonna they're gonna be okay. They're gonna go ahead and 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 do that. They're gonna run with it. Um, Another thing that's always been important to me in my practice and youth work, and this is something that I do in the classroom too at UW-Madison, and this is probably just because of who I am as a person. You talk about feelings. I'm absolutely a feelings person. Yeah. I've I've done all those Myers-Briggs assessments. I've done those since like high school. It never changes. I'm always a feeler. I often have an attitude, right? Like If you ask me to do something and you don't say hello, or you don't ask me how I'm doing, Like I'll probably have an attitude, Um, and part of that is for me, you gotta be able to center people's humanity, right? Like, Mm -hmm. don't 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 start talking at me in a meeting. Just getting down to business, like at least. Say hello. <laughs> like, you, yeah. you hope people are doing well. So, this is a practice that I picked up in all my youth work experience from the time I was in eighth grade, which is before you do anything with a group of young people, you should probably check in with them. Like, a check in. How are you? What was your day like? What's going on for you? Describe your mood. You know, what good things happened to you today? What are you struggling with? And actually holding space for that. And so that's a practice that I learned when I was 13 years old, and that has carried me through all of my youth work experiences. And that is something that I do in my college classrooms today um, when I don't have a hundred and something person class. Um, (laughs) um, But usually in my discussion groups um, and then actually I take that back in my hundred person classes since we've been on Zoom. I've been um, having people check in on the chat so that I can at least see like how people are doing. I mean, we're in a pandemic right like black people are being murdered by the police like people are going through it people have lost family members people are in economic turmoil like <laughs> people may not be having a good day um, and for me as an educator when i know that i can either you know hold space for however long i can or however long is needed for people to be able to just share that they're not okay or that they are okay um, it helps me understand what I should do next. There have been times that I've been teaching where I'm like, okay, well, what I had planned today is actually not gonna get done. And that's okay because we can't, we can't. And so I have to revamp revamp this in some kind of way that we can acknowledge where people are and um, and sort of speak to where they are in terms of what their capacity is for what they will be able to handle, right? Cause yeah, if no one's listening, like, why would I lecture for you know an hour and a half when everybody just told me that they are exhausted? And if they do that, then maybe before I start lecturing, we'll um, I'll make you get up and dance with me or something. Like you, I just so anyway, all those things have been those. That's something that I learned early on in my youth work days. Um, unfortunately, it's not always what people do in the academy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I you I, yeah, you just spent like so much wisdom that I'm just nodding my head just like yes, this we just this is exactly what we need. Like not only like businesses are coming around finally to be like, "Oh, our our workers are humans. Like maybe we should evaluate, like and value them." Um, that yeah, that's crazy it's taken so long. But I also just love like you're giving space and really just like the the fundamental response, you're allowing people to say like, I am having a bad day and normalizing that. Like in the US, you don't talk about, you don't talk about your really high good feelings. If you're at neutral, um, that's okay. Below that, no way. Right. So yeah, I love that. And it doesn't mean it defines anyone. It's just at this moment, take some space. And like you're saying, it's a pandemic crazy things are happening. Um, it's an absurd. We've only been in this pandemic for like a month and a half. Or sorry, not a month and a half. A year, a year and a, a month. Half.
1: Yeah. <laughs> a year and a month,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not losing it. Um, <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. I'd be uh, so curious to just like watch this happen in action too, if that's a possibility <laughs> in the future. Um, so, we have kind of gotten in your timeline. We've gotten to the end of undergrad did you stay in California for graduate school? You said you went to New York eventually. What, what was your next step
1: after undergrad? I've never left school, Ben. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I went straight through. Um, so I, after graduating, uh, I went to Columbia Teachers College um, for, um, for graduate school. So I, I originally signed up to do a two year master's program um, and then I ended up staying for my PhD. Um, and actually, before that, so my my first semester of my senior year in college, I actually did an exchange program. So I went to Howard University for a semester. Um, I wanted to have an HBCU experience, um, and it was actually the school that I got into. I was choosing between Berkeley and Howard when I was in high school, and so um, Berkeley had this amazing exchange program, and I had never even heard of a domestic exchange program. I had only know about I only knew about um, abroad study abroad. Um, and so, um, I, so I had that experience, um, and I was all set to go back to DC for graduate school. Let me tell you, because I had the time of my life because I was 21 in my senior year in high school (laughs) and in DC, I was out and about, um, I'm a big, big music fan. Um, I love live music and, you know, DC's birthplace of go, go. Um, and so I was just having a blast. Um, so I wanted to return. And then I um, I got into Columbia. Um, I hand wrote that application. Wow. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure it was late. I'm pretty sure it was late. <laughs> um, and I wasn't even gonna apply because I was gonna go back to Howard. Um, and one of my, my coworker at the time, uh, same as James Marshall, shout out to James Marshall, um, (laughs) who was a law school student, actually. He was like, oh, you should just apply. You know, it's one of those, you know, a lot of these, um, Ivy league schools tend to have large master's programs where they accept a lot of students. And so it's like, you should, you should just apply, you know, whatever I applied and I got in. And so, um, yeah, (laughs) so I was there, um, for two years and then I, um, while I was in the program, I applied for a couple other PhD programs and then decided to stay at Columbia to finish my PhD.
0: Cool. How was that transition for you from going to West to East Coast?
1: Um. Well, I had a, the 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 DC experience was helpful. Um. I, well, Southeast, yeah, it was <laughs> Southeast. Um, um. So it it was helpful. Um. Because. I had experience being far away for at least four months. Um, so the transition to New York um, wasn't that difficult um, with regard to kind of being from the West Coast. Uh, apparently, people knew immediately that I was not from New York. Um, <laughs> and they're like, you smile too much. Um, <laughs> um, I found New Yorkers to be nice, though. I just think they're direct. Which I it, you know. Um, I love that. You know, you somebody cuts you in line, you've got a whole squad of people being like, "Nope, she was next." <laughs> Get to the back of the line. Like, I love that. Um, so, um, I really enjoyed my time in New York. But um, so the transition wasn't that uh, wasn't that difficult. I also transitioned with kind of a built-in community. I um, ended up working <laughs> um, for Barnard College um, in their residential life services. So I was a hall director for a dorm. So I ran a dorm (laughs) for four years in exchange for room and board. So that was challenging, (laughs) fun at times. I mean, I appreciated um, living rent-free for the first four years of my time in New York City, but I definitely earned every every minute I stayed in that apartment.
0: Yeah. I can believe that. Uh, absolutely. Even, even though you may have lots of skills of working with youth, you can't control all of them.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, at that time it was a pager. So the, when you were on call, you know, you could only go into, you couldn't take the subway. Um, we had to stay within, I don't know if it was like a 20 block radius or something like that. And so a lot of my calls, nothing was really super, in, um, uh, something, a few things were, were emergencies, but for the most part, it was a lot of uh, nursing people back from drinking too much, um, blocking out people, it just that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time in the ER watching people sleep off their uh, intoxication.
0: Fun. Yeah. You deserve <laughs> everything that you got, for sure. Okay. So you said you never left school, just trying to get the timeline right. We were at Columbia, then did you return to DC and then UW?
1: No, so once I graduated uh, from Berkeley, um, I went immediately to New York City in Columbia, and then I was there for seven years. Um, PhD programs take about five to seven years at TC. Sometimes they take more like seven to 10.
0: Just FYI, TC equals teaching college.
1: But I got out in in seven. and then um, I moved to Madison. Mm-hmm.
0: And how was that? Now that you're in the Midwest.
1: That was a harder transition. <laughs> that was definitely a harder transition for me. Um, it was me and a cat, ripped to my cat. Um, Stevie Wonder was his name. Um, and uh, we packed up and moved to Madison. That was a shock for me. Um, one, it was. I mean, I guess it was the one place that I moved to that I didn't know anybody um, when, I was, when I transitioned to, to Berkeley, actually the cool thing is that there were people that I knew from elementary school um, who were at Berkeley that I recognized and were like, hey, <laughs> you were in my fifth grade class. Um, and then, uh, then other people who I knew through the organization that I was a part of. Um, so I knew people. And then Columbia was the same. There were people from Berkeley. There were people from Howard who I who I had met before. People who knew people. Um, so I didn't feel like I was um, alone. Madison for me, I didn't know. I didn't know anybody. Um, I definitely made connections. Um, so the year that I got hired, there were probably about, I think about 17 other new faculty members um, in the School of Education. And so we came We came in together. Um, one of those uh, faculty members um, became a really, really close friend of mine. And she's like family and her family is like my family. And so I quickly built community, um, mostly of other people who were new to Madison or new to um, academia. And that was really great. Um, so I felt like I came in and I had a really cool nurturing space of, uh, young junior faculty members, um, um, young junior faculty members who were black women. Um, many of us were, they were, we were kind of all living alone <laughs> as well. So it was nice that tough for us to kind of have each other. Um, but the winters of course was a big transition and you want to hear a funny story? Oh, please. Um, so <laughs> I, my dad gave me his pickup truck. So the pickup truck though is was only two-wheel drive. And so that was my first car in Madison. So you should see me like from LA, like trying to navigate the snow in a two-wheel drive pickup truck. Um, I was pretty much afraid for my life. <laughs> Just about every every day. <laughs> every day in the winter. Um, I got rid of that car after my first year. So <laughs>
0: Yeah, that was my follow-up. How long did you actually deal
1: with that? It pretty it wasn't gonna make it. I mean, it was really old, and you know, my dad didn't drive it that much. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it got me through, but it was it was it was not fun. Um, and I want to say my second year in Madison was when classes were being canceled because it was so cold. It was that was I don't even remember what year that was, but um, it was like below like negative. It got to like negative twenty. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Um, my family was quite concerned for me being out here. <laughs>
0: I, I also have family members like check in. It's like it's negative twenty up there. And it's like, yeah, it, it's cold. I'm staying inside. And that's like that is my life right now. Where are you from? Uh Cincinnati, Ohio. Originally. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I've hopped around a little bit. I went uh from there, went to Indiana University in Bloomington for undergrad masters, did AmeriCorps for a couple of years, so lived in Arkansas, in Appleton, and then moved here. So kind of midwestern. I feel like yeah. I need to check out the coast, like I've never been to LA. And so oh. it's like, you're talking about South LA, it's like, I know this regional area and I'm just imagining <laughs> cars and highways. Um, also a great industry for shipping.
1: <laughs> yeah, you got the highway part right, that's for sure. Oh, uh, it's, traffic is ridiculous. Um, and it, you know, LA is huge, 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 so.
0: I'm imagining, since you were so active in lots of organizations outside of, the university um, throughout your career and then coming to UW without knowing many people, were you able to connect to the community pretty quickly?
1: Yeah, I was. Um, I, I I think that had a, um, a lot to do with uh, my hire. So if I get this correct, the reason why I was hired, um, uh, well, not the reason why I was hired, but the Madison Initiative for Undergraduates. Uh, there was this program where they were beginning a certificate in um, education and education services, and this was supposed to be designed for undergraduates who had an interest in education and working with young people, but who didn't maybe want to be traditional classroom teachers. And so the call, the announcement for the for the job, said that they were seeking a assistant professor of after school education and out of school time. Um, and when I saw that, I was like, "This is not real. This, this can't be real. This is not real." I, um, one of my one of my advisors at the time, Mark, um, who knew Gloria Latin Billings, um, who's a you know prominent, uh, brilliant, uh, legendary uh, education professor who retired a couple years ago. I was like, this can't be real. And he's like, I'm going to check with Gloria. (laughs) And so he checked with Gloria and they were like, yeah, it's a real position. It's a real thing. And the reason why I kind of have to back up and tell you why is because um, it was so it was very specific. All right. Um, And within education, um, people tend to study schools. They study schools, they study classroom teachers or administrators, experiences of students. And so you didn't see a whole lot around after-school education um, in a way that, you know, they wanted someone to really, who whose expertise was in this area. I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, this must be like a person who's already there and they want to like give this person the job and they just have to publicly announce it so that they don't get sued. This can't be real. Um, but it turns out it was real and it, this position was, um, I could have been in any department um, within the School of Education, um, but because I'm a, a sociologist um, by training, I fit you know, fit in educational policy studies, which operates more like a educational foundations program. So um, because of that, you know, I had these connections to or they connected me with the Mortgage Center for Public Service. Um, at Madison who had all these community partners. And so, um, and I think because of who I am, like I'm a youth worker first, right? Like I I get it, like <laughs> I know the day to day of you know, what it's like to be a youth worker. Um, I was able to kind of meet people really quickly. I spent my first year here Setting up meetings, people were reaching out to me. I reached out to people. I wanted to kind of see programs operate in the area, you know. So I met a lot of community-based leaders. I met a lot of youth workers, um, and immediately started working with some of them. Things were sort of laid out for me in some ways. Um, I did do definitely some legwork, but I think because of uh, of my position um, and the way that it was advertised, people sort of knew that I was coming. Um, and people have big mouths too, so. <laughs> You know, I mean that's that's not a bad thing. It's just that, um, you know, people would say, "Oh, well, if if these are your interests, um, you know, so and so is coming, and this is her expertise, and so they knew to reach out to me once I arrived." So, so
0: pre pandemic, were you like out in the community maybe fifty percent of your time, and then fifty in the office, or yeah, what was your like mix?
1: Oh, that's a good question. how do I think about this? So I would say, from the very, very, very beginning, um, there were a couple of organizations that I got to know really well, and there were times when I would just um, engage with them. So, because I'm a youth worker by training, if I don't see a young person, you know, every couple months, like something, something falls off, something's not right with me. So um, there were times when I would do like workshop series with young people. Um, with youth organizers in the area for certain organizations. um, And I would just do that. And so that might be like a summer. Throughout the academic year, I could be engaging um, pretty frequently with like community-based leaders based on like issues they might be, might've been having, you know, or sort of an exchange and sort of talking about um, where they wanted their organization to go. I taught a, um, a course called Rethinking After School Education, where students were uh, partnered with community organizations in the area. Um, and so I, I taught that class twice. And so, total, I had about seven or so partnerships with organizations in the area that students really got to work with for an entire semester. Uh, so, there, there was that. I always try to think about my teaching or my classrooms not as not as a space just for enrolled students, um, but really a classroom for the community. Uh, And so I've always invited youth workers and community-based leaders to participate in my classes. Um, I often will feature them as guests. um, Again, going back to the way that I think the field of education um, dismisses the knowledge and wisdom of community-based leaders and community-based educators and youth workers. And so I really wanted to prop up like who they were, and so I did that for my undergraduate classes and my graduate my graduate classes. And so, you know, really throughout my time in Madison, there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of work um, in going to organizations and you know engaging with young people or engaging with staff. I've done a lot of professional development training with um, staff members at organizations. Uh, whether it's partnering with organizations to uh, support my classes. Like I said, I'm really all about putting youth workers in the face of everybody. Um, so my comp- my uh, department uh, has a annual conference every year. One of the years that I was in charge of it, um, we made it a, you know, all hands on deck. Like we're not just gonna have teachers. We're not just gonna have school leaders. We're gonna have community-based leaders. We're gonna have young people. Oh, surprise, there are young people in a school of education. That, that should not be, <laughs> it shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be something that we're surprised by, right? So, um, so, um, so doing things like that. Um, and I would say in the last two and a half years or so, I've been developing um, communities of practice with youth workers in the area um, with the support of the Madison Out of School Time Initiative. Um, who um, that's, that's facilitated and coordinated by um, a wonderful person by the name of uh, Nathan Beck, um, who was a former student of mine. He's incredible um, and has done a lot um, for youth workers in, in the Madison area. Um, and so through those uh, workshops are typically series um, where I meet the same group of youth workers who are committed to uh, disrupting racism, disrupting systemic whiteness, disrupting harm um, that might be functioning in their organizations. And so they graciously like to spend time with me and we go through sometimes, you know, three, four or five weeks of training um, around uh, sort of talking about these issues. And it's a it's also an experience where they get to learn from each other um, because if you know anything about youth work, it's a lot of, it's just a lot of work, it's a lot of time. Um, depending on the nature of the job, young youth workers can be on call 24 seven. Um, and sometimes there's not a lot of opportunity to engage and think about your practice deeply, uh, especially with other people who understand. And so these communities of practice, um, are situated so that youth workers can talk to each other so that they can talk through, you know, issues of equity and sort of think about how to improve their practice and to, um, engage young people better.
0: You know, the theme of this podcast is really to get to know the person who, who's behind the research. And I was reading all the papers you you have published, and it's like, I just want to ask about every single one of them. So I had to control myself. But I, I there's one thing I really wanted to get to is because I, I think you have a couple papers out on this, pre- and because I know you have a book out too. If you're interested, Bianca's book is called Reclaiming Community Race in the Uncertain Future of Youth Work. And I think you have a few papers out, or at least themes on having a really white liberal community, um, that might say like, we're all about youth work or supporting these communities. that don't have a lot of resources. So I'm, I'm curious if you could just talk about your work a little bit on that theme.
1: Yeah, that's more recent work, um, where I've been really curious, um, just about, um, you know, communities and neighborhoods, cities that profess to be progressive and liberal and on the side of justice and, you know, equity and diversity and all those things. Um, But where there is harm done to um, black, brown, you know, indigenous communities, um, in particular thinking about um, black youth um, and racial disparities. Um, And what interests me about this dynamic is um, there are times where uh, there's lots of there can be lots of liberal uh, discourse around around all the all the things, right? Where uh, progressives can use their race language and talk about racism being a bad thing or you know homophobia being a bad thing, but then in practice and or when it is time to restructure, redistribute power, redistribute wealth, um, you know, uh, promote women to <laughs> um, to positions of power. Uh, to, you know, remove gender binaries and sort of allow for like gender expansive uh, folks to sort of step forward or to, you know, all those kinds of things, then then it becomes an issue, then it becomes a problem. Um, and in one of the papers that I recently wrote, um, I uh, wanted to understand what this meant for black youth in the context of community organizations, uh, particularly organizations that were, um, dedicated to engaging uh, young people of color in community organizing. Uh, And going back to sort of liberal discourses around race, you know, there's this disconnect between being able to sort of talk about these things and why they're bad. And then there's another thing to sort of perpetuate those same harms like in the structure of your organization. So when you look at some programs and it's like, well, where are the leaders of color why are there no leaders of color? Or <laughs> why are um, Black youth sort of made to um, tell their st- stories of struggle and triumph for funders in this really kind of uh, voyeuristic kind of way that can also often be harmful? Or, you know, what if young people want to talk about this one thing, but it becomes really uncomfortable for um, the sort of well-meaning liberal white folks who are at the head of the organization who don't want to talk about that topic, like that becomes an issue. Um, and then, you know, for me, that, that that becomes a big problem because my earlier work with um, with young people in New York, especially, was around social identity development, political education, helping young people um, understand and make sense of their multiple complex identities. So talking about race and ethnicity and gender and sexuality and class and how that intersects with how they might've been relate, uh, raised um, sort of as it relates to uh, religion, as it relates to their position in the family, citizenship, like all those kinds of things. And you can't squelch that. Like you you, you can't, <laughs> you, you can't be afraid of that. Um, and if who you are as an adult, as a white person, as a cis man, as a a heteroman, like all those things. If those things make you uncomfortable, then you probably shouldn't be engaging with young people. <laughs> like we can't we can't shut down young people's desire to process what's happening around them because it makes them uncomfortable. You know, like if you can't engage in a conversation about the murder of a young black man who's been killed by the police and that that's on their minds of your young people, you have to make space for that. And if you can't, you probably shouldn't be in that position.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm curious if like, especially in your time in Madison here, um, if you've noticed either code words or you know specific language when you hear that, that disconnect between someone who may identify as really progressive in their speech and some of their actions, but then don't necessarily let uh, people who are actually being affected, by the policies, actually voice their concerns.
1: Yeah, I think there's two examples that I would share. Um, they're they're both in um, a publication that I um, wrote last year. Um, the first is thinking about um, you know when racial disparities are revealed, and um, <laughs> white liberal folks become shocked that those disparities actually exist, and that you know black people and other communities of color are suffering or that people who live in low-income settings are suffering and they're surprised. Um, so there was this one um, sort of form, <laughs> this sort of larger community discussion uh, where these disparities were being kind of reviewed and um, and my research assistants and I uh, went to a lot of different... Um, you know, discussions about all this. And uh, there was one um, woman in particular, resident of the community, white woman, who talked, who stood up and said, um, you know, how do we let them know that not all of us are like this? How do we let them know, um, how can we help them? How can we How can we help them? And um, in this particular panel, there was uh, a white man on the panel who I believe was a former, well, not former, but it was a clergyman and was just kind of like, that does not, that that does not, (laughs) that's not useful. Um, That doesn't come from a place of love. Um, And for me, you know, and for my research team as we're analyzing this, it's also not about shifting structural power or like dismantling systems that allow for there to be such economic disparities in this area that disproportionately impact communities of color. There was no conversation about that. It was all about, how white people were feeling, right? About feeling bad or feeling guilty and like not wanting people to know <laughs> or wanting people to know that they weren't, that they felt bad about it. And I'm like, that that's not productive. <laughs> that's, not, that's not really productive at all. Um, so that that was one example. Um, the other thing that I hear a lot too is um, a lot of, co- again, a lot of co-signing um just a lot of like yes yes this is right or this is wrong i can't believe this is happening this sort of outrage and one of the things that i found in my research is that black youth workers are like why are you shocked and a lot of them kept saying the the shock among white residents for them was really telling because it's you know how do you not know like you kind of have to know Like like you so clearly you are <laughs> ignoring like you know, not paying attention, not, not observing. And a part of it is because your privilege ends up protecting you. You don't really have to see it, you know? Um, and so a lot of my youth workers are just kind of like uh, this this whole shock thing. Um, and, and the thing is, is that people love to, I, I, to say all that. Like it was a lot of, oh my God, can we talk? I'm just so brokenhearted about this. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> Um, and what are you going to do? Um, the other thing, the last thing I'll say about this is another example from, from my research as well, is that there were, there are people in the community, amazing activists and youth organizers, uh, who have worked with young people for a very long time who are just stellar, but who don't get hired at, Um, many organizations. And um, one participant actually described being asked to go to organizations to train staff members about how to work with young people. But at the same time, they can't get a job there because they don't have a college degree. And it's like, you recognize that I'm an expert here, but you're not hiring me because I don't have a college degree, but you call me every day about (laughs) how to do this work. And you don't always want to pay me, right? That's a whole other thing. (laughs) So yeah, a lot of Black youth workers um, described feeling exploited. How do you
0: recharge and take care of yourself?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, So I don't do anything on Saturdays. Um, Saturdays have become my favorite day. I sleep in, I make a big brunch, I binge something on Netflix. (laughs) I, I don't do anything. I don't do work. I don't check email. I don't look at my computer. Like Saturdays are my days, um, and I love them. Um, so that is, that is only one day a week. Um, but um, so for me, I enjoy cooking. Um, I recently joined the cult of Peloton, um, and so I've been I've been um, engaging in that. So yoga has been really helpful for me. I love the fact that it's very music centric. Um, I'm a big music fan, so um, and I love good music, so um, that that's been great for me. So working out and getting my endorphins going, all that has been really helpful. Um, and then, you know, pre-pandemic, um, I don't know if we'll do this this summer. I don't know what's going to be allowed or not. But I'm a, I was a big music festival person. Like, you know, give me good food, give me good music, give me good people. Where I can laugh, you know, like that is what I enjoy. So, so for me, it's food, music, and laughter. Um, those are the things that kind of uh, keep me keep me grounded. Um, and uh, yeah, but I, I would say that you know this year has just been really, 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 really a struggle. Um, you know, my uh, my partner, um, we lost uh, his mom this year, you know, one of my best friends' brothers died of covid like in june, like early, you know. So, you know, lots of other people who've been so impacted by covid, you know, my parents are far away. I haven't seen them in a year and a half, you know. So, it's just been like this craziness of up and down and yet people still want to do things normally. Um, so I have to in order to take care of myself, I've been pulling back when I when I can and trying my best not to feel Anyway about it, right? Like I, I don't, I don't care. I don't care what people think. Um, and like I said, Saturdays, Saturdays have become my time. Um, I tend to shut things down early as well. Like I try not to work into the evenings. Um, you know, once I'm done, it's done. If I can't get it done in that nine to five period, like it's just not getting done. Um, though. At this point in the semester, that's a lot harder um, because I have amazing students who are all graduating at the same time. So I've got dissertations and thesis projects and all of that to kind of get through. And there's not enough time in the day. But um, anyway, I appreciate this question. I'm always kind of, you know, preaching self-care. So, yeah, you know, being able to work out music, laughter, food. I kind of want to go to culinary school. I don't know. <laughs> I do. I don't know if it's all the pandemic. I mean, my parents are really good cooks, but um, and I'm um, I'm, I'm plant based pretty much. Yeah, mostly plant based, and so I really want to go to like a vegan culinary school. <laughs> yeah, one, one day. day.
0: Yeah, can you do that part time?
1: I'll do it. <laughs> Maybe summer, like a summer class or something.
0: Well, good. I'm glad you have like some motives to take care of yourself. Um, and like you said, the end of the semester is, is rough, but I hope you can get through it. And I know I'm like a random stranger, but I'm here for you if you need it. Aww,
1: thanks, Finn. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're I hope welcome. You, I hope you're getting some good self-care in too. Uh,
0: yeah, it's, it's a bit harder because I'm trying to turn this podcast into an actual thing um, while also doing a PhD, but... This is I mean this is actually like really energizing. I feel like I've tapped into something that not a lot of people are able to hear either just by hearing life advice and journeys from people who are like a couple years ahead of them, but I just you know I get charged by hearing these deep conversations and um I feel I feel like I can cheat the academic system by basically like I kind of just had a like a new mentor pop into my life I got to ask him like whatever I want, and you know I'll send him on the way. But yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun, and yeah. So I thought for for you, I would I'm diving back into my brain of when I was a youth worker when I was working at a camp uh, at the Boys and Girls Club, and I was trying to bring some activities from that for us to both do. And unfortunately, we can't necessarily have s'mores or do these team building (laughs) games, everything that's like so quintessential about camps or, you know, in the boys and girls club playing pool, Mm -hmm. foosball, um, the ball game. So I've come with some, if you have time, and I can't tell if you're at home or maybe your office. I'm at home. Okay. Would it be possible to find three random objects that you like in your house, and maybe we can meet back in two minutes. I'm going to get three, and then we'll meet back here in a little bit. Two minutes later. All
1: set? I'm all set. I didn't move much, so you know. <laughs> because my <laughs> desk fine. is cluttered with like things that I like. <laughs> okay.
0: All right. I've done like a little bit of improv, and sometimes a warm-up game is, uh, I think it's called gift-giving. So I'm going to have something for you. You will graciously accept it. And then it's a solution to one of the problems that you have. So like I could give you a pen. You could be like, oh, thanks for this pen. Like I've needed this new pen uh, for a while because my other pen got ruined somehow. Not an exciting example, but we will take turns. You can gift me something. I can respond. And then I will give you one of the things.
1: All right. So the first gift that I'm giving to you is... Hand cream. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, I believe in moisturizing. I believe in taking care of your skin um, for, you know, to feel good and to look good. And I think it is very soothing. Um, and I think it's a form of self care.
0: Yes. I actually really <laughs> appreciate this gift. <laughs> Just last night, I was brushing my teeth and got a little bit of toothpaste in a new paper cut um, oh. on my hand which is just a sign I need to moisturize. <laughs> yes. And another reason is because I have a gift that I use that i like to give to you. In my in pre-pandemic days, I rock climb. And so I have Ooh. this tool here, which you can squeeze um, and it will actually build up your grip strength, but it's hard plastic and sometimes gonna be rough on your skin. So maybe you can accept this to solve something for you and combine it with that moisturizer.
1: I accept that. And then, oh. I appreciate that. And then I'm going to give you a gift of a notebook. Um, this was actually gifted to me as well. It says growing and glowing. Um, so I'd like to give you this um, as a way to be able to write down your thoughts and feelings and jokes yeah, <laughs> as well. Um, I always believe in writing things down and they tend to come to fruition too.
0: Yes, they do. In fact, I have... Uh, I appreciate this because the notebook that I have right in front of me that I'm going to use for our interview has two pages left, so it's very timely. Um, I would (laughs) greatly appreciate that.
1: But that's a good use.
0: (laughs) That's a good use indeed. And speaking of growing, I would like to give you this orchid plant. This orchid is a small petite orchid and it has uh, maybe eight flowers left on it. It had like 16 at one point. This orchid is named Regal Ken because (laughs) his just so regal and you know gorgeous. Um, hopefully that can be of help to you somehow.
1: Thank you. I mean, I've been trying to be a good plant mom and I tend to fail, so that is actually very really inspiring. <laughs> um, so my last thing here is a little Prince um, <laughs> doll here. This is the uh, later version. This is the third eye blind um, version of Prince. Um, and uh, Prince sets up my desk and so, uh, it is actually an honor for me to give this to you because I you know, I, yeah, it means a, it means a lot to me. Um, you know, Prince is one of my favorite artists, but then um, also just music in general. And so I think music is uplifting, it's inspiring, motivating, um, soothing, um, powerful. Uh, and so and you know, Prince kind of colored outside the lines. Um, and I appreciated that. like he he he, he did what he did how he did it when he wanted to, and I love that. So hopefully that can be inspiring to you, too.
0: (laughs) Yes, thank you. I, you know, in different ways, also want to break down some barriers um, (laughs) and just make it okay to be yourself in whatever capacity it is. And in return, I'd like to give you a box of dark chocolate um, from my favorite chocolate company, Taza Chocolate. Oh, yeah. You, You know Taza? Wait. Yeah, stone ground is the like stone ground. Yeah, they're the best. <laughs> they are the
1: best. They are the best, and they're vegan.
0: <laughs> oh, that's right, they are too. Um, mm-hmm. I think I've talked about tiles of chocolate on like half of the episodes that I've done before. I'm not, I'm not getting paid. I'm just really enthusiastic about this chocolate because, <laughs> like you said, stone ground, and they have the ones that are really gritty. You can have the smoother ones. Great, great colors. And I'm the person who loves super dark chocolate. Mm-hmm. And this, I feel it's like a real wheelhouse. In fact, this is a whole box of dark chocolates, Wow! like 70 plus oh, with wow. 100% if you if you can go for it, <laughs> which I would like to give to you.
1: Thank you. I love those. Do you like the flavored ones? Like the, have you had like the cinnamon and the guajillo pepper one? Oh, yes. The- oh,
0: yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Those are good. In my dreams, I magically get sponsored by Taza chocolate, <laughs> and they don't actually have to give me money if they send me chocolate. Oh my gosh, that you know, and it, it, I pull that chocolate too because, like, I consume a lot of chocolate. Like, I will go through one of these boxes, you know, three to four weeks. So, so yeah, you can tell it's part of my life.
1: Wow, you really love it. Well, with
0: that, I will come to a close. And Bianca, it's been a delight to have you on the podcast. I hope I see you around campus and we can chat in person at some point.
1: Yeah. Well, I have got some news for you. Um, oh so it's, boy. This is actually my last year at UW-Madison, so <laughs> yeah, I'm headed to Harvard um, in the fall. Um, I've accepted a position there.
0: Yeah. Wow. It's been that's real. <laughs> yeah. But it sounds like you're on the fun, exciting things too. So yeah. that's great. Yeah. Thanks. There, I'll be I'll be the wind underneath your wings. <laughs>
1: Appreciate
0: that, (laughs) Ben. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush. I hope you enjoyed this sincere conversation with Bianca. And if you did, Bianca will return in a special episode to happen in the future, which is going to be really cool. Until next time, be well. Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush was produced and created by me, Ben Rush, music by me, Ben Rush, and our our new social media manager is Jevin Orte.
1: Two minutes later. Two minutes later. Two and a half minutes
0: later. 3.25 minutes in the future. Two months and two years with your friends in a pool later. Two eyeballs, two tongues. And two minutes and two best friends and two cartons of eggs and two weather balloons and two forecasts of local weather in Madison, Wisconsin, and two additional minutes later. (laughs) Yep. This is what I do.